At Woodside Bible Church, we gather each week to pursue God by studying His Word together. As we've turned the page to a new year, many are wondering what will come next and how to navigate it when it does. We invite you to tune into our series, What Now? How Tomorrow Shapes Today, as we explore the words of Jesus in Matthew 24 and 25. Together, we'll learn to look toward the future because what we believe about tomorrow defines the way we'll spend today. Let's discover God's answer to the question on everyone's mind. What now? All right, if you have a Bible, please make your way to Matthew 25, and we'll dive in pretty quickly here this morning. Over the last two weeks, we've been asking the question, are you ready? But let me ask this question as well. Are you ever really ready? When you think about the major things of life, are you ever truly ready? Are you ready ever to get married? I thought I was. And I realized I wasn't. Are you ever ready for the day you leave home for college or a job and all the autonomy that comes with it? I thought I was, but not really. Are you ever ready for children? Your first child, your second child, your sixth child, your tenth grandchild? No, you're not. You're never really ready for those either. The question our culture has been asking is, are you ready for what happens next? And the truth is, who knows? Who knows? Maybe our answers to these questions are no or not really, or maybe we feel kind of prepared. Maybe some of you, if you would say, yes, I feel ready for what's next. The culture's question just leads, in my mind, to empty anxiety and frustration because we'll never be able to anticipate everything that life throws at us. It's impossible to anticipate. A better question, a biblical question, The question I believe we should be coming to our minds as we continue our journey through Jesus' Sermon on the Mount of Olives in Matthew 24 and 25 is, what does it mean to be ready for Jesus' return? What does it mean to be ready for Jesus' return? In Matthew 24, verse 44, Jesus said, therefore, you also must be ready for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. So Jesus gave instructions. He said, be ready, and then answers the all-important question of how. How are we to be ready? And he answers it not directly, probably the way that we'd prefer by giving us a list of instructions, perhaps. He gives us the answer through four parables, four stories that teach us about the kingdom of God. And he does this in these two chapters, Matthew 24 and 25. The four parables, we've looked at them. The thief in the night was the first, the faithful servant, the ten virgins last week, and then today, the four, or I'm sorry, the talents. That's the fourth parable. So last week, we looked at the parable of the ten virgins. And his primary point was not to discuss sexual purity, although that is absolutely addressed in the Bible and through the words and ways of Jesus. His point was instead to drive home this question of preparedness. Being ready, he said, looks like being prepared by patiently waiting. That was the point of that particular story. Now he's going to say that being ready also means being diligent. It means being diligent, and when it comes to being a follower of Jesus, a disciple of Jesus, a servant of Jesus, a student of Jesus, a believer in Jesus, when it comes to being a Christian, diligence means we faithfully serve the master, our father. 
That's what diligence looks like, that we faithfully serve the master who is our Father God in heaven. Now, it's hard to be ready when you don't know what's around the corner, but Jesus told us what is to come. And if you know what's coming, then it should shape how you live today. That's what this whole series has been about, that when we think about what Jesus has said about what is to come, that it would shape how we live right now. Now, the disciples had no idea that crucifixion was just simply a matter of hours away, a few days at this point. So Jesus takes time to prepare them for life after he is gone. And his lessons are just as relevant for us today as they were for them then. He tells us that not only are we to be ready for his return, uh, but we also must faithfully serve as we await that return. Now this parable, this story is divided up really into three scenes. So we'll discover how he says to be diligent, to be ready, to be prepared by faithfully serving the Father as we walk through the story itself. So let me begin it in verse 14. This is what Jesus says. He says, for it, that is the kingdom of heaven, that's the referent of it, it, the kingdom of heaven will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. To one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, to each according to his ability. Then he went away. So Jesus says, the kingdom of heaven will be like a man going on a journey. And I would ask, this is one of the problems when you know the scripture. And if you've heard this story before, so often we're like, there's no surprise left in the story. Uh, The beautiful part about the Word of God, I wish we could always kind of reshape it in our minds so when we hear it, we heard it as if we were hearing it the first time with all the plot twists and turns. So try to allow the Holy Spirit to do that in your life today. And so Jesus here is comparing the kingdom of God to a man going on a journey. And the man is also the master and refers to Jesus himself who is called the master nine times in this context. Now, before he leaves, he gets his servants together and he gives them his property. He gives them what are called talents. In the Greco-Roman world, a talent, a talenton, was the largest unit of currency. Around the 15th century, the word talent in English came to mean ability or aptitude. So you are a talented athlete, a talented singer, a talented speaker, and a talented entrepreneur. And do you know how this word changed from its basic meaning from money to ability? It was because of this parable. Uh, This parable was applied to areas other than money so often that talent came to mean ability and not just currency. So as we work through the story, tuck that away in your mind, if you would, that the talent symbolizes more than your money, but not less than your money. It certainly represents that as well, but much more too. So a talent was a unit of money, a monetary weight. I've heard a lot of ranges for what a talent would be worth in today's world. Some suggest it's the equivalent of about 20 years of minimum wage. So roughly about $400,000 in today's money. Some suggest that it would be equivalent to about 70 pounds of gold. Sometimes they would use silver, but let's go with gold. That sounds more impressive. So 70 pounds of gold, which would equate to about $1.4 million. So let's split the difference and just assume it's worth right around $1 million today. 
So this master gave five talents, five million dollars to one, two to another, and one to the other, according, it says, to their abilities. So five million, two million, one million. And just to remind us of the incredible spiritual truth that Jesus is getting after through all of his teaching within the gospel here. Jesus shared another parable. Let me just reference it quickly. Another parable about talents back in Matthew 18. So I want you to think about what he just gave out. Five talents, two talents, one talent. Keep those numbers in your mind and think about what he says in this particular parable a few chapters before about the unforgiving servant. He says, then Peter came up to him and said, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me? And how often should I forgive him? As many as seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 70 times seven. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared, sounds just like the parable we just started, just may be be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. It was impossible for him to pay this amount. In many lifetimes, and out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. 10,000 talents. That's a personal $10 billion debt. In other words, our debt, our sin is insurmountable, and yet through Christ, our debt is completely paid. Completely paid, paid in full, not in part, but the whole, all 10,000 talents gone. He says it's gone. And so when we come to this parable today and we're thinking, wow, that's a ton of money. He's talking about five talents at the most. And here, 10,000 talents have been forgiven. The expansiveness of God's grace upon us through Christ. And in Christ, we have been given every spiritual blessing, according to the book of Ephesians, in Christ Jesus. We live in spiritual abundance. That's the point. Abundance, and we will one day experience the reality of eternal abundance in the new age that Jesus ushers in. Now, Jesus says that each was given talents according to his ability. It could be translated according to his power. What do we do with that phrase? That might really bother you. Kind of bothers me a little bit. So does that mean you have more power or ability than the next person? But I think here's the principle he's after. And it might sound odd. It might not sound fair, but not everyone is expected to carry the same weight for God's kingdom. Some people are given more than others. Are you okay with that? Peter had a different purpose than John. John had a different purpose than Mary. Mary had a different purpose than Thomas. Thomas had a different purpose than Bartholomew. We're not even sure what Bartholomew did. They had different purposes. Does that mean that God is not just? It just means that he has different purposes and callings upon our lives, all for his kingdom and all for the sake of disciple making. 
We have been given different resources to diligently accomplish our specific purpose as we wait on the return of Christ. Now, the problem comes when we change how we view what, what, what we have been given from eyes of abundance to eyes of scarcity. From eyes of abundance to eyes of scarcity. Think about it. If you've been given $1 million, would you complain? <laughs> I hope not. I mean, the answer should be no. <laughs> like, no, if you were given $1 million, what would you do? Like right now, if somebody came in and gave you a million dollars, you would scream, you would shout, you would faint, you'd fall to your knees, you'd weep. Isn't it amazing that one million dollars sounds incredible until we notice our next door neighbor got two? And then we look over the other way and the other neighbor got five. And all of a sudden we're like, why did you only give me a measly million dollars? It's a million dollars. What is wrong with us that we, we put this posture on the Lord? The truth is comparison kills. Comparison kills. Comparison is the slayer of your peace. Comparison is the assassin of your joy. Many of us tend to think we are one-talent people, unless you're a millennial. Most millennials think they are like 10-talent people. <laughs> Don't be angry with me. It's <laughs> just generalizations. But even trying to determine the number of talent person you are exposes the disease of our hearts. It's not about one. It's not about two. It's not about five. We have all been extravagantly blessed by God to carry out his work diligently. This is not a principle relating to our financial position, our financial capital, although it could since everything we have has been given to us from the Lord. The reality is that every believer has received an unfathomable gift from the Father, even if the believer were impoverished. So we must blind our eyes of comparison. We must magnify our eyes of abundance. The reason why you are not experiencing joy is in part because you're comparing. The reason why you do not feel peace is because you're letting comparison kill the very things that Jesus has already given you in his gospel. Stop the game of comparison. God has already unfathomably, abundantly gifted you. Now, in Jesus' parable of the laborers in the vineyard, Matthew 20, the master gives all the workers the same amount of money for their efforts, even though some servants worked fewer hours than the others. Maybe you remember that story. The workers who put in a full day fell into the trap of comparison, and they complained. And so the master says to them, am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? So many believers today are not seeing the fruit of the kingdom of God expressed through their life and the power of the Spirit expressed through their lives because of this begrudging, because of this comparison. That is what a Western, materialistic, individualistic, consumeristic society does to you. That is not the way of Jesus. 
It doesn't matter whether you have a penny to your name. You have been given every spiritual blessing in Christ. 10,000 talents worth of sins forgiven from beginning to end. Eternity given to you because of Jesus. You'll never diligently serve the Lord when you're dissatisfied with his generosity. Let me say that again. You will never diligently serve the Lord when you are dissatisfied with the Father's generosity. Joy is impossible to experience when comparison fills up the thoughts of your head. Peace is impossible to experience when comparison fills up the thoughts in your head. What's your response to the Father's generosity? Has it been comparison or worship? Have you responded rightly to what God has entrusted to you? Have we collectively, as a church, this church family, this spiritual family, responded rightly to what God has entrusted? That's the first point we see from this parable. Respond rightly to what he has entrusted. So what did they do with their talents? That's the second scene, the use of their talents. Look at verse 16. He who had received the five talents went at once and traded with them. He made five talents more. So also, he who had two talents made two talents more. But he who had received the one talent went and dug in the ground and hid his, his master's money. So immediately, the first servant goes and trades with the talents. No time to spare. No time to waste. The time is now. The master will want to know what I did with what he gave to me. So I need to move. I shouldn't sit still. Who knows when he'll be back? Maybe this trip is just a day. Maybe it'll be a decade, but I'm going to be ready. So he puts it to work. He serves him faithfully. He is diligent with the investment of the gospel, with the investment of the gifts he was given, and he ends up doubling the investment. He doubled it. Diligence means doubling it. The second servant does the same thing. His two became four. Diligence means doubling it. Say double it. Double it. Say it again. Double it. Double it. Are you a disciple of Jesus? Then invest what Christ has put into you into the life of someone else. That's doubling it. Invest what he's given to you, this spiritual gift all of, the, all of the riches of heaven in you, these broken pots of clay, that's what we are, broken people, but invest it into the life of another. And as you invest it into the life of the, another, that's what it means to make a disciple, to see that take root, not through your power, but through his. And as we do this, it doubles. He asks us to double it. Jesus is saying to us, reinvest what you've been given for the kingdom of God. Reinvest it. It's not just for you. Can you imagine if Jesus came and just said, this is all for me, which it really is. And yet he served. He reinvested all of his life to the very end for the sake of others, for the kingdom of God. He asked us to do the same. Now, when you think about this reinvestment, just some simple math. I did this little quiz with my kids. They tell me they got it right, but I don't remember it that way. Um, not really sure how they answered. Now, I get confused. I passed over 40, and now I forget things. Um, would you rather have a penny today that doubles every day for a month or a million dollars? Real quick, don't do the math. Who says the million? 
Some of you guys, some of you guys are lying. How many studied the penny? A few of you guys, maybe you've heard the illustration before, if so that's, I'm not going to tell you the answer. Well, let's, let's think about it. Day one, one. Day two, two. Day three, four. Day four, eight. Day five, 16. Day six, 32. Day seven, 64 cents. Anybody want to change their answer? You're one week in. You got 64 cents. Day, day eight, a buck 28. Day nine, what is that? 256. Day 10, 512. Day 11, 10, 24. Day 12, 20, 40, 40, 40. I took a note down. 48. Day 13. $40 something. Day 14, I wrote down day 14, $81.92. You're two weeks in. You don't even have 100 bucks. <laughs> By the time you get to day 30, $5,368,709.12. Double it. Double it. What are you doing with what the Lord has entrusted so often we think about, man, we just want to see revival. We want to see God's word go forth in power. And, and we're like looking around like, where's the revival happening? Do you know what it takes? All it takes is each one of us as followers of Jesus making a disciple. All of us investing. All of us saying, that's why we're here. The only reason we're still here is to fulfill the Great Commission. The only reason we're still here and we have not been brought home is to make disciples because we already are through faith. It's so that others might experience the grace of God and experience what is to come and be prepared for Jesus' return. If we want to see movement in this community, if you want to see movement in your family, if you want to see movement around you, just double it. Make a disciple, pursue it, let the Lord do his work. But that means we have to invest what he's invested into us. It's not completely passive sitting back, well, just eat the popcorn and wait, wait for something to happen. He uses us to do his work through his spirit. But the last servant, what did he do? The last servant went into the field, dug a hole in the ground, and hid his master's talent. He neglected the gift. He buried what he saw as a burden. He abandoned his calling. He deserted his purpose. He marginalized his mission. He received the talent, beautifully wrapped, graciously given, and he never even bothered to unwrap it. He just said, return to sender. So what happens? Scene three, the master returns. It's accounting time. Verse 19. Now, after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. And he who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five talents more, saying, Master, you delivered to me five talents. Here I have made five talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. And he also who had the two talents, came forward. Master, you delivered to me two talents. Here I have made two talents more. His master said to him, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. 
The master returns to settle accounts. Notice the language, not their accounts, his account. He came back to settle his accounts. The point is that everything he entrusted was already his. Everything the servants had was borrowed. So he comes back to see how they did with his resources. Now, maybe at this part of the parable, it bothers you. Maybe you're thinking, if you're completely honest, maybe you've thought at some point, if it's all his, and if it all goes back to him, then what good is it to me? When Jesus tells us in James chapter 1, Every good and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. So James is saying God is good, and every good thing comes from him. There is no good outside of him. It's all from him. So anything that is good originates, emanates, and proceeds from him. Now understand, church, being frustrated with the idea that you don't get to keep the talent reveals some awfully short-sighted thinking. You might have to give back the talents, but you gain the talent giver. Which is better? And the master says to his own, what's mine I share with you. You are co-heirs with my son. You are recipients of my kingdom. You are mine and what you have is mine. Yes, but I am yours. And since I am always and only good and the source of all good things, that means you will receive only good things forever. What would you rather have? Your one talent or the one who owns them all? And he shares it all with you. Now, when he settled his accounts with them, the first servant says, I doubled it. The second says, I doubled it. And even though... 10 is not the same as 4. The master says the exact same thing to both. You've heard this if you've heard this passage preached. He affirms them both. He says, well done. He entrusts more to them both. You will be given even more. He invites them to experience his, his joy. So the amount of money they were managing wasn't the point. That wasn't the point. So although there might be different purposes for our lives within the kingdom, they all got the same reward. The point was that they were diligent with what they had. They were faithful, and they both faithfully served the master by reinvesting in his kingdom. But what about that third servant? Verse 24, he also who had received the one talent came forward saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. And so I was afraid, and I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here, return to sunder. Have what's yours. Why didn't he reinvest? Why didn't he diligently work? Because he doesn't really like the master to begin with. He says, you're a hard man. You reap where you do not sow. You gather where you have never scattered. You wanted me to work for you when you're not working at all. His opinion of the master is bitterness. It's anger. It's resentment. He is joyless. He is fruitless. And his idea of the master's heart and character are the opposite of reality. That is deception. Countless people in our world today, maybe even some of you, are fighting against God by assuming things about God's character that are simply not true. They have been deceived. That's what Romans chapter 1 says. It says, and since they did not see fit to acknowledge God because of their assumptions perhaps about God, because of the pain 
of what they're going through. That's what oftentimes pain does. We can either run to him or deny. They did not see fit to acknowledge God. God gave them up to debased mind, to a debased mind, to do what ought not to be done. What do you think of God? Who is he? What shapes your view of him? The world or his word? The flesh or his spirit? Your circumstances or his promises? Your complaints or his covenants? Your wallet or his warehouses? Scarcity or abundance? Fear or love? What is it that shapes your view of who he is? Your resume or the work of his son? Is your relationship with him in a tomb or is it fully resurrected through faith? This soul despised him and was consumed with fictitious, self-centered ambitions and appetites. He didn't care about the approval of his master, nor did he want the approval of his master. He says, I don't really care what you think. I'm living for myself instead. So what does the master say? It's accounting time. But his master answered him, you wicked and slothful servant. You knew that I reaped where I have not sown and gather where I scattered no seed. Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers, and at coming, I should have received what was mine with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to the one who has ten talents. For to everyone who has will more be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away and cast to the worthless servant into the outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. His point in the broader context, remember the return of the Lord and serve him faithfully. Instead of affirmation, this one receives condemnation. Instead of joy, he receives isolation and despair. Instead of greater responsibility, he is stripped of responsibility. Jesus' words are so full of encouragement for his disciples and so full of challenge for everyone else. They're so heavy. Who are you in the story? I'll give you a hint. You're not Jesus. Who are you? Have you responded to God's call upon your life? It starts with your view of him. It starts with faith. Moving from distance to intimacy through submitting your life to Christ. That's where it starts. Jesus is saying to us, I've given you an invaluable gift, the knowledge of the kingdom of God and the good news of the gospel. You're not all the same. My purposes for you aren't all the same, but one day I will return, and when I do, I will see what has been done with my investment in you. If you call me your master, then faithfully serve me. Your response to my leaving will prove that you are my servants. Your faith will produce diligence. Your faith will be put to work. You'll double it. And when I see you again, you will be brought home and your joy will be endless. Church, his message for you and me has not changed at all. Nothing has changed. This is his challenge to us. Being ready means being diligent. Being diligent means we faithfully serve the Father, the Master. The temptation to bury the gift of the gospel and to live for ourselves, it is real. So let me close with this quote because it is very real. If I had time to sit down with each of you, we could share about all the ways we're being pulled from the work of the gospel and being pulled by the flesh of the world. Pastor John Piper in his book, it meant so much to me, Don't Waste Your Life, 
He said, I am wired by nature to love the same toys that the world loves. Anybody else? I start to fit in. I start to love what others love. I start to call earth home. Before you know it, I'm calling luxuries needs. Anybody done that? Doing a wedding today. And the wedding is the owner of Greenia, like he sells John Deere stuff in four-wheelers right, right in Almont, if you've driven by it, or north of Almont. I'm doing their wedding today, and I was talking to them yesterday, and he was telling me, you know what? We cannot keep all the toys we're bringing into this place. People are just getting money, whether it's government handouts or whatever it is. It's like stuff's just flying off the shelves. Because we have these toys and we call these luxuries needs and using my money just the way unbelievers do. Pastor John says, I begin to forget the war. I don't think much about people perishing. Missions and unreached people drop out of my mind. I stop dreaming about the triumphs of grace. I sink into a secular mindset that looks first to what man can do, not what God can do. It is a terrible sickness. And I thank God for those who have forced me again and again towards a wartime mindset. We are in a very real spiritual battle. We need to remind each other to respond rightly to what we have been given, to reinvest, to remember our Lord is coming again. God, we need his help. We need his help. We need to motivate each other to faithfully serve our Father, our Lord, our King, our Christ, our Savior. God, help us. Would you bow your heads and let's close with prayer. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for this parable, Father. We are reminded of the good news that we have here. The Father, you have entrusted us with gifts beyond comprehension that every spiritual gift is ours in Jesus Christ. Father, you have given us this joy of serving you faithfully. So, Father, be with us as we do it. Help us to reinvest, not live in fear. Help us to take the investment of the gospel and double it into the life of another. Father, for any here this morning who identify themselves as the third servant and they know that they have distance from you, they've never placed their faith in you, they've been living for themselves, they've not submitted their life completely to Jesus for the forgiveness of their 10,000 talents sin. Even now, Father, I ask that they would pray in their minds to you, that they would acknowledge and say, God, forgive me. Forgive me of my sin. I repent. I believe that Jesus' life, his death, the ultimate servant of you, his resurrection, through faith in those experiences through his work, I can be saved. Forgive me. Begin new life in me. Let me share that hope with others. And Father, for all who have received that gracious gospel gift, I pray that we would use it for your glory, that we would be found when we meet you face to face serving you. We would be found at the day of our death or the day of your return, faithfully, diligently serving you, and you would say to us, well done. Well done. Father, we desire to hear those words from you. 
So we submit our lives to you. We confess our sin to you once again, and we will follow the ways of Jesus this week. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for joining us as we study God's word together. We would love to hear how God is moving in your heart and get you connected into the Woodside Bible Church family. Head to woodsidebible.org connect to introduce yourself to us today.